Podcast ain't played nobody. This is Bill uh, and Godfrey. We we found out what you said last week or a couple weeks ago was absolutely true. Uh, if you assign homework, that means you have to actually read the homework you receive. We got way too much homework. We are in the, you know, so we post these on SoundCloud. We also post them at SB Nation. And within the SB Nation uh, link, uh, at the end of this, you will be able to read the emails that we received regarding the homework assignment we uh, assigned a couple of weeks ago. We took last week off, which allowed a couple more emails to come in. Um, but yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the running themes actually for, for this podcast has been, you know, hard jobs and, and tough programs. And, um, you know, Godfrey, this was all Godfrey's idea, by the way. Um, it's, it's all, which was a really bad idea only because (laughs) we have to do work now. We were trying to, we were trying to make the listenership, uh, compensate for us in the, in the off season as we, as we really hit the Valley here. And now, um, we got a, a bunch of really thoughtful, informative responses that we have to uh, do justice to. There's a lot. Yeah. We're going to try and get to everybody, too. Um, if we don't, I apologize. We are not going to read everything that everyone wrote, um, or, or this would be uh, this would be much like a Senate filibuster type uh, <laughs> listening experience. Yeah, so in this SB Nation post, I'm sharing 10 emails we received combined uh, 8,244 words. So um, hop to that. This is the first. This is the first podcast that you'll have to read, um, but we are going to, uh, you know, let's dive in. We the homework assignment was basically take a hard program or take a lot of hard programs and tell us how you would go about trying to win there. Um, seems simple. Uh, obviously, it is not simple. Otherwise, it would be pretty easy to do. Um, and I say we'll start with our friend Joey. How's that one yeah. sound? Okay, okay. so uh, this one jumped out at us because it's not a traditionally thought of uh, a bad place. You know, we, we solicited this in, in the doldrums of talking about like San Jose and Wyoming and these, you know, much smaller group of five schools. Joey wants to talk about Georgia Tech. Um, and so he brings up, um, you know, smaller athletic budget relative to the ACC, the fact that um, the alumni base is, is smaller than, say, a Clemson or a Florida State, and it's more spread out, and that also it has very tough academic standards. Um, let me jump in towards the middle of what Joey says. Where I wanted to go with this, though, is how the tough job aspect may have affected the rest of the country in, in its analysis of the Paul Johnson experiment. Johnson became the first modern became the first in the modern era of college football to bring his offense to a power five and BCS program back in 08 um, has had varying levels of success, high peaks, low valleys besides 2015's three win season. There's also a 2010 season that saw six wins, uh, but also lost to Kansas and an independence bowl to loss an independence bowl loss to air force dot, dot, dot. Ew. Um, my question to you is, and we're skipping ahead on some of these. Um, basically he wants to know, what the lack of the national adoption of the offense of what Paul Johnson, the triple option, Ken, Ken, Ian Machinolo at Navy, um, uh, coach Munkin and army, et cetera. Um, what is the lack of the national adoption have, uh, have changed if Paul Johnson had elected to take his offense to a school that was less of a tough job and potentially had more success than he's had at Georgia tech as a result. Would we have seen an offense like that by now at a school where it's a little easier to get more talent on the roster or is the system itself just so unsexy it's only worth trying out at the very toughest jobs? Huh. Um, well, Bill, I think this makes a, a couple assumptions here. Um, and one is that Georgia Tech was a, uh, a place that had no other choice but to bring in a triple option. I don't think that was the case. I think they willingly diversified. 
Um, they they had had success in the past. They have a share of a national title in the, in, in the you know post polio vaccine world of college football. <laughs> um, so it's a broad assumption at the start. I do think he hits on a very important point, which is that the high peaks and low valley seem to uh, accompany Johnson. That seems to be what you're going to deal with as as talent cycles in and out um, through key positions in the offense. Um. I don't know. Let's see which hypothetical we want to take here first, Bill. Do we want to go with if more teams start running the triple option or if this is just installed at a different school in the Power Five? I mean, let, all right, let's do this. Does Paul Johnson go to Wake Forest instead or North Carolina State uh, just to keep it in the ACC um, or or even Syracuse? Um, do we see a dramatic difference? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the other assumptions here is that, you know, the, the idea that Paul Johnson may have had other options. Um, you know, what's beautiful about Paul Johnson, one of the things I love about him is that he's not going to fool anybody. He, he is exactly who he is. Um, and he is somebody who, you know, an Alabama is never going to hire. So um, he, it, it would be... I don't think he would have had a choice if he wanted to coach at a power conference job. I think it would have had to have been one of these quote unquote hard job or media or middle of the road job kind of programs uh, where he wasn't ever going to be in a situation where he could just, you know, sit back and let the program recruit itself and and then benefit from five-star talent. The Uh, most interesting part of this to me is the, is I feel like the college football consciousness is waking up to the fact that, what Gus Malzahn does at Auburn, you know, with the run pass option, the RPO and the triple option are very, very, very similar. Yeah. So if you're willing to take a little bit of a stretch in terms of formation and you talk about a program that's going to give you the bit, the best of every world, which is, um, aggressive recruiting budgets, huge fan base, uh, lots of demand, you know, uh, admission standards on par with any of the major football schools, all that stuff. Um, and, and you just tweak the look of it. I think Auburn is your answer because they're able to attract top talent. Um, I do find it interesting off the top of my head that they've had similar peaks and valleys, although their valleys have not been as low. Um, it is a very, it, it, it's a, I think more so than any traditional non option based offense, painfully reliant on the quarterback, especially at Auburn, maybe even more um, so than Auburn. So um, you mean the valleys at Auburn aren't as low? Is that what you meant? Yeah, I mean, okay. you know, well, Auburn, Auburn hasn't lost a, you know, Auburn hasn't had a three win season, you know, with with Malzahn running the offense, they haven't with lost Malzahn, to Kansas. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, you know, as, as we've talked before, it does seem like you know Auburn can run into trouble by thinking it has to recruit certain guys, um, even if they're not a perfect fit or not. But yeah, I mean, the bottom line with Paul Johnson's offense is it really, really works. You know, even you know, I, I'm I'm looking at my S and P numbers here. So he's been there eight seasons now. Um, their offense has ranked out of the top 40 only twice. One of them was this last year, which was a really, I, I can't, I, I'm looking forward to writing the Georgia tech preview because it was, it's a really confusing year. They, they ranked third in, in my offensive numbers in 2014 and they returned a lot of those guys. Um, at least <laughs> none of the, I guess, what was it? The slot backs. I think, I think they had to replace a ton of those, but this was, you know, he, he has ranked, let's see. Six, uh, 38th, 16th, 33rd, 16th, 37th, and 3rd in six of those eight years in offense um, with top 50 or top 60 recruiting classes. Um, this offense works. Now, 
defense has always held Georgia Tech back. You know, they've never um, – I'm, I'm looking through here. He was 32nd in defense his first year there. So when he was kind of still running a lot of Ch- uh, Chan Gailey's guys, they had a pretty good uh, defense that year. Since then, 54th, 82nd, 84th, 45th, 50th, 54th, 65th. So they've been in that 40 to 60 range for the most part, which probably isn't as bad as some might assume. But um, obviously defense has held Tech back when Tech has troubles, at least until 2015. So, I mean, if you're looking for a, a good offensive system that can basically move the ball against anybody, if you're, you know, as we've talked about before, like I, I would love for, for Neu to end up at like an Iowa State or something at the very least just to see because he, he'd move the ball. You can absolutely move the ball with this offense. Um, it would be up to you to figure out the defensive side. But you could absolutely – the fact that Ivan Jasper isn't a head coach uh, yet, the Navy offensive coordinator, kind of bugs me a little bit because I think uh, he would do – you know, this. I want to see this offense in more places. Um, I think it's, uh, it, it's a really interesting idea, Joey. I don't know if it's exactly in line with what we had assigned because I think, again, like with most Georgia Tech questions, it just comes down to talking about the offense and talking about the philosophy. I think if you apply, if you go back to a pro style at Georgia Tech, you're going to have kind of mid-range success. That's a very blah statement, you know, an assumption. Bill, do you want to disagree with me? I mean, I don't think you have the old Georgia Tech numbers right in front of you, but I think it's fair to say, look, you can obviously recruit in and to Atlanta, um, but you are going to be stacked against the fact that it's a huge, you know, it's it's basically a hunting ground for, for seven, eight, nine, ten power programs in the Southeastern Conference plus you know, you don't have the, the brand equity that Georgia has, et cetera, so on. So I would say, yeah, if you went back to a pro style, you could still be successful. Um, I think this all just sort of points to the bigger question of how much longer are Johnson and Tech going to be happy in this marriage? And that's a yeah. really good question that I would like to answer sometime this season. Yeah, I have no idea what the answer is. I hope a long time because I just I like continuity. I think it's very good for a program more often than not, but – by the way, you mentioned uh, Iowa State and, and Nia Matanolo. Uh, again, Willie Fritz's name was sort of bandied yeah. about for that job. Would have been nothing against Matt Campbell. It, I think it just would have been way more interesting to watch that in the Big 12 when you're talking about a diametric opposition in styles, uh, you know, relative to what the to every other school in the conference. Would have been very fun to watch. Yeah, Matt Campbell's got Mountain Union in his blood. He, he knows how to run a program, and that's and maybe he'll do just fine. But... Um, yeah, you do figure, <laughs> you you do figure that maybe they need a little bit more something there, uh, you know, a little bit more of an unconventional hire, and so we'll see. Maybe we're wrong. I was very very wrong about James Franklin at Vanderbilt. I thought that was way too quote unquote conventional a hire, and uh, he was he worked brilliantly well almost immediately. So we'll see. Yeah, and the thing we tend to pigeonhole coaches on hires, especially in the interim between the hire and their first season, based off of obviously their past performance, but any kind of philosophy that they 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 lean on, and, and a lot of coaches, especially when they make a step up from Toledo to the Big Twelve, they're going to expand their playbook, they're going to diversify, they're going to change things up, they're going to try and adapt to the level at which they're now coaching in. So um, it's a bad habit. We do it. Everybody does it. Um, actually Franklin's a really good example where they had one of the most diversified playbooks I've ever seen his first and second year. Um, and that wasn't because they had such a, um, a a breadth of talent. It was just kind of a kitchen sink approach of, well, this work, okay, let's try this, let's try this. And they, they didn't really want to hang their hat on anything in particular because they didn't know what they had, um, which is kind of similar to what you're getting into at Iowa state. 
Yeah, that's actually, um, this is a, <clears throat> a digression here, but at Rockin' this morning, um, I wrote a little bit about like a five-year-old piece that Chris Brown wrote at Smart Football when he was talking about Dana Holgorson's offense at West Virginia. He basically, like Hol- Holgorson said, you know, he, he wants to be able to introduce his entire offense in three days. He wants guys to be specialized. If you're an outside receiver, you're an outside receiver. You know exactly what that does. You're not an inside receiver. And everybody has their own specialties uh, and you can, uh, work with a very, very, very simple approach. But I think, you know, this was at, at Rock M this morning, so I was talking about Missouri's offense last year. The Missouri's offense was a c- incredibly simple last year, um, you know, uh, in the passing game at least. You know, Jamon Moore's on the right. Um, uh, uh, Nate Brown and Wes Leftwich are on the uh, – on the, or excuse me, Jamon Moore's on the left. Brown and Leftwich are on the right. They're running these three or four patterns. They're never open. They When they're open, they sometimes don't catch the ball. Um they, they, it seemed like they needed more of a kitchen sink approach, but they clearly weren't sure that they could, that their guys could handle that. It was so many freshmen and sophomores, so much inexperience that keeping it simple, maybe they felt they had to just to keep the load light, but it, it, it clearly didn't work at all. It, they needed to experiment a little more than they did if they wanted any hope of moving the ball. And that just, that rarely happened. So, so here's the good it, news, Bill. We're already um, a good bit in. Um, we've addressed multiple programs and styles. The problem is we've only answered one email. This is <laughs> I feel like we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure. I'm going to jump ahead to Stephen. Um, Stephen understands that brevity is the soul of wit and writes in that for Fresno State, the key to success is to have the car family breed as much as possible. End of email. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know yeah. if I'm going to argue against that. Um, I mean, that last, uh, the last car, what was the last car's name? That was, that wasn't David. That was, um, yeah, Derek, right? Yeah. Derek Carr was the last one. I think he already has like two kids. So there's going to be a little bit of a lag here. This sounds um, so much, so much like, um, my first year covering a beat full time. Uh, even though I was still in college, I was working for the, the local media and the Atlanta journal constitution covering Ole Miss when I was finishing up my degree. And it was the first year after Eli Manning had been in Oxford. They, I think Ole Miss won four or five games. They kind of got annihilated on offense after Manning was gone. No one knew, you know, no one thought Cutcliffe was able, you know, really going to do anything without having that marquee talent. And at the time, the perception was this program can't recruit. This program can't, can't develop talent like an Eli Manning consistently. So you're just going to have to wait until you have this one weird, incredibly talented family with a relationship to the university. So I think my message to Fresno state fans is, um, yeah, it, it's, it is awesome. And it is defining that you have the car family that's, that's bought, brought you the success and you should probably build statues and end zones after them and all that good stuff. But it takes a long time to cycle generations through. Um, and they, they're only going to play for two or three years when they do. So you might want to figure out what to do in the interim. You know, the- Ole Miss, Ole Miss fired David Cutcliffe, then hired Ed Orgeron in the Houston nut. Yeah, I, I just like I, saying, I just like uttering that sentence whenever possible. Uh, well, well done, guys. Uh, obviously, they obviously they rebounded. Obviously, they're doing fine now. But uh, yeah, impatience really works out well. I want to put uh, Bill in a ditch already. Um, I think you've probably had this question thrown at you probably ten different or ten thousand different ways over the past couple of years, but um, it is worth addressing. Daniel writes in. I have a few ideas, but would probably just be repeating the others. What I think I can add, though, is a term. This is basically college football. Yeah. Before I even read Daniel's email, and thank you for the email, Daniel. Um, is this possible? 
Is is there any correlation between what Billy Bean did with the Oakland Athletics and and what you could do with a college football program? I'm, I'm sure this has probably been beaten to death in in statistics circles. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It, it's <laughs> the Moneyball is is kind of a, a catch all at this point, right? So it's it's really easy to just say that word and everybody gets a general idea of what you mean. But no, I mean that's that's basically what it is. Basically, what what Billy Bean uh, did and the Oakland A's did there in in the early two thousands, late nineties, early two thousands was they they used analytics to do it. But but they basically they sat down and tried to figure out you know we have no money, we have to buy cheap players. What are the the undervalued where, how can we find an undervalued talent that will help us win games? Um, and so, you know, the whole zig when somebody else, when everybody else is zagging thing and what they found with the book, you know, uh, a lot of people have associated Moneyball with on base percentage at this point, but basically that's, that was a, that they, they used analytics to figure out that you could get guys who, you know, were slow and out of shape, didn't look good in a uniform, but could get on base. Uh, and that those guys were incredibly undervalued in the, early early 2000s because they didn't look like you know incredible ball players um maybe they were overweight this and that and the other but they always got on base and in baseball if you don't get out you probably are doing pretty well um the whole the whole goal is to not get out when you are at the plate and even if you're quote unquote clogging up the base paths uh you're scoring runs if you're not making outs so 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 if i were to explain this with zero math ability in my pretty little head which is true i could just say that the entire the entire ethos of moneyball is just obp uh the entire ethos of moneyball is exploiting inefficiencies what they found was on base percentage was a good way to do it in 2000 now as time has gone on you've seen you know then the, the book basically immortalized what they thought Billy Bean's belief in baseball was, which was, you know, get on base, uh, defense is overrated, et cetera, et cetera. But really it was about we can find undervalued players because nobody else is valuing on base percentage correctly. Uh, and then when the book came out and, and other teams adjusted, then on base percentage was valued correctly. And so they looked elsewhere for advantages. So they've gone through, you know, pitching heavy and offense heavy and they've loaded up on defensive players at one point or another and Kansas City exploited you know Kansas City's not incredibly a good uh money ball example but Kansas City exploited speed and contact last year and so really it's about explo- figuring out when you when you don't have as many resources as everybody else it's about figuring out where you can get undervalued talent uh and and uh, and I think really one of the really impressive examples to me of that in college football, you know, the first thing you can do if you're trying to figure out quote unquote money ball is what are most teams doing? Let's do the opposite. Um, in that case, I've assumed for a long time that we would see a lot more teams going big and slow as, you know, a, a Stanford or a, when Taggart was at Western Kentucky and suddenly was pretty competitive uh, Vanderbilt uh, teams that basically, you know, if, if you, we, we all think of tempo and the air raid and all that, but um, if, if you don't think you have as much talent as the other team, but the other talent is super fast and maybe getting smaller and faster because of the spread and because of trends and offense, then if you can load up on muscle, uh, and slow the tempo way down so that there are fewer opportunities for the more talented team to go to move ahead. Uh, if you can do those things, uh, keep a game close. Uh, this isn't aesthetically pleasing like, you know, the, the air raid is to some people, but 
that seems like that's kind of a money ball approach to me. Uh, you know, uh, generally I speaking, the, uh, I think offensive linemen are, are probably the hardest players to identify. Like if you can't recruit any three or four or five star athletes, you can probably still, you're, you're still, you can still probably craft a pretty good offensive line, for example, or you're at least more likely to be able to do that than, you know, put out five incredibly speedy receivers if you're not getting those five stars. So that would be my approach, I think, is in terms of money ball, um, do what the others aren't doing, get bigger and stronger and slower um, and try to push these smaller, faster defenses around. And when you say slower, just for clarity's sake, there are kids at Stanford who can who can run who, who can run the 40 in, in, in sub four, four time. You're not talking about slow. You're talking about uh, 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 tempo. Well, right. Yeah. About. I mean, I, I was also I was referring to both that and jokingly, uh, you know, talking about getting slower if everybody else is fast. But yeah, no, that's I, I think you hit on something. That it, it's, it's interesting there because I know a lot of guys who have worked at, for Taggart and I've talked to Taggart himself multiple times. So he comes off of the Stanford tree by way of the Harbaugh specifically. Um, what that what that tree or system lacks is is some sort of common accessibility for programs that aren't at the very top. And so Stanford people tend to incorrectly pigeonhole what they're doing at Stanford as something that's unique to Stanford in terms of its success. And it's not. No. Um, Even whatever Harbaugh ends up doing at Michigan is probably going to come off the same way. Um, That's why it was so fascinating to see. Taggart Taggart comes in at Western. They're running tempo spread, variated you know, you name it, typical, typical sub G five type of offense, and then he goes big and heavy, and he's terrible for it for a couple of years because it's very hard to transition um, that roster into what you want it to be mm-hmm. when you're when you're running the power. You don't just convert guys who are the X receiver and five wide set into you know big physical blocking receivers and setting up guys to run you know tight end flag routes. It's just it's not something that you do overnight. Um, He's done the same thing in South Florida. If he's able to have a breakout year, and without looking at what they've lost or gained, I'm not exactly sure. I, I know they're they're pretty well positioned for next season in terms of depth, and he's recruited better and better. Yeah. If they have a breakout year in a market like Florida, that's going to be that accessible, uh, mimicable program. Whereas I think Stanford and, and Michigan feel a little bit too ivory tower. This <laughs> system needs, and, and it's funny to, to draw it back to, to Moneyball, the Oakland A's were such a scrubby team, and I think the accessibility came in. Well, uh, oh, if those guys can do it, they don't even have resources. Well, we could definitely we could replicate that. Um, I think because the sheer number of programs in college football, you tend to look and see what programs in your in your world in your realm are doing. If you can replicate it, um, and if South Florida could do this, have a nine or ten win season, I think you'll start to see programs, especially in the G five, go back to, hey, let's recruit a bunch of big tight ends and hey, let's let's try and run the football at, you know, let's let's run the football from under center um and try and pound guys a little bit. That may be the most money ball move just in terms of scheme. Now program building and philosophy, we could go eight different ways on oh, that. Yeah, because yeah, you've yeah. got to go into recruiting, you've got to go into, you know, how how are you budgeting a program that doesn't get a big fat check from ESPN, all that stuff. But I think as far as scheme, that would be pretty interesting. That and I think defensively we're gonna see um the kids that were left out as uh, uh, this is already actually happening was as I talked to a defensive coordinator in the SEC last week. Um the kids that are now being sought after on defense 
for you can call it a husky position you can call it the go you can call it whatever basically linebacker defensive back tweeners mm-hmm. are now coveted because yeah. of the the tempo and the speed that, that you're seeing on offense whereas a couple of years ago even even as recently as eight or ten years ago those guys you didn't know what to do with them and they kind of fell by the wayside um so that may be one where if you go uh, lighter, faster, and more versatile on defense, you're actually going to be better for it. Alabama might disagree with me on that, though. Right, and Alabama... And, and Reggie Raglan is still going to get drafted and, you know, probably in the top 15. Right, so. if you're recruiting like Alabama, then it doesn't matter. You're going to have you're going to have 6'3", 240-pound linebackers who can sometimes cover guys in the slot um, right. because you have the best of the best. But everybody else uh, has to make a choice between... Keep between the third linebacker or kind of a more of a nickelback. And what that means when you're, when everybody's leaning, looking for these nickelback type guys, which makes perfect sense because slot receivers are very common now. Um, when, you know, you can't cover, most guys can't cover a Sanders or whoever in the slot with a, with a linebacker. Uh, so you go towards nickelback, you're, you're adding speed and you're subtracting about 20 pounds from your defense. Um, so if you're a bigger team that can work to your advantage, um, but no, I mean, it is a, ve- a very interesting way of, of thinking about things. And I think Stanford, by the way, the, the, the pivot they were able to make under both Harbaugh and Shaw from basically, I mean, they walked in the door and they were immediately better. Um, you know, they were 1-11 in Walt Harris's last year. They were 4-8 and eight and they beat USC that first year. Um, they, they st- it took them another year. They only went 5-7 and seven the next year. They were better, uh, but they still only went 5-7. and seven. And then, you know, in 09, they kind of sort of break through. They go to the Sun Bowl with, um, I think that was with, what, Gerhardt and a redshirt freshman Andrew Luck, if I remember right. Um, but in, in that time, they went from kind of being the, the slow down, this is the only way we can win games kind of situation to we're recruiting like top 15 caliber guys now. Um we can experiment a lot more. Now we've got all the tight ends, but we can also burn you deep with our wideouts. Uh, and we've got a Heisman contender in the back, in the backfield who wasn't some random two-star overlooked guy. He was a four-star recruit. Um, so they, the way they've been able to pivot, but kind of keep their same. I mean, when you talk to Shaw, he'll say the word competition 50 times. Like he, that's their whole brand is getting competitive guys uh, who will work to see the field and they'll play more guys than most guys to, uh, than most teams will to reward them for going onto the field uh, for, for doing all the right things. They'll let them get on the field and, and uh, take some reps. Um, but the, the fact that they've been able to raise their recruiting game and still keep that kind of ethos. I mean, that's 12 wins, 11 wins, 12 wins, 11 wins, 12. They've won at least 11, five times in the last six years. And that's why. At Stanford. At Stanford, they're doing that. We haven't talked about the triple option in like 10 minutes. Um, Chris writes, as a Navy fan, I never want to see this happen because I love the job he's doing, but Hawaii could hire Ivan Jasper. Yep. Um, Bill, tell everyone who Ivan Jasper is. He's uh, on the Navy staff. Well, I, I, Ivan Jasper has basically been the right-hand man at Navy for a long time. I think, he, I, if I remember right, he he's a, a little younger than you, but he basically, he was, I think, a quarterback under Paul Johnson at Hawaii. Um, I, boy, I think I'm getting that right. Uh, and then he's basically, um, worked for mostly either Johnson or, uh, Neo in the last like 15 years. Like he, I think he's ready. Uh, he, maybe he's not had coach caliber. You never know for sure, but he's studied under the two guys who have taken the uh, option and won a ton of games with it. Uh, so I, I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten a, a look yet. And, and maybe he wasn't interested in Hawaii. Maybe that's why I know he interviewed there this last, uh, cycle, 
maybe he's the one who said no. I don't know. But if he didn't, I, I maybe he just interviewed terribly. I don't know. But that that I, I was hoping he would get the Hawaii job because I think that would be perfect for Hawaii. Jasper could hire Craig Candido as OC. Uh, Candido is a former Navy player. Uh, to and I can't remember where he's coaching right now as OC to assist in running the triple option and bring in a Buddy Green disciple like Steve Johns or Justin Davis to build a bin don't break defense. In three to four years, Hawaii becomes Navy West. Um, well, Hawaii just made a hire, hmm. uh, so this won't have any real world uh, applicability for a while. Chris, I like what you're thinking. Um, Candido's actually around. right now he's uh, assistant director of football operations at Georgia Tech. He's a pretty recent grad, if I remember right. Um, I, I like I like where Chris is going with this one because Bill and I are big proponents of the triple option tree growing more. Um, not because we're fans of any of those schools, although I did grow up watching Georgia Southern. It's more just because we'd like to see that diversity influence the rest of college football. And Hawaii uh, feels like a program that's. I wouldn't say is tailor made for this, um, but I'm actually working on an NFL, a couple NFL draft pieces. Yesterday, I had a conversation with someone in the NFL who scouts talent, and they said that they're seeing more uh, from American Samoa than ever before. They're seeing more from the Pacific than ever before. When I'm talking about the Pacific, I'm talking about like the whole Pacific. Um, there's something to this, yeah. Bill. I think there's something to the idea of Hawaii taking that money ball approach. And the last thing you want to do when you get off of a plane, say it's midseason in October, we've we've diagnosed Hawaii's scheduling problems multiple times, but let's let's flip it to the advantage side and say you get off a plane and you're San Diego State or Wyoming and it's October and you've just traveled a very long distance, now you gotta go deal with a triple option or, or maybe maybe it's a power option, maybe something a little modified. Uh, that that's a huge headache to contend with. Yeah, and they had a lot of success with Kind of the opposite of that, with the the passing version of the of the triple option, you know, with the really unique kind of run and shoot aspect uh, attack that June Jones had, um, and it worked. I, I do think with Hawaii, you really need a, an identity like that, a relatively extreme identity, actually. Uh, but we've seen that it can work, and and obviously, just because the run and shoot work doesn't mean the triple option would. But it's sure. that kind of idea, and I think there's a little bit of talent on the islands, especially as it pertains to uh, quarterbacks and running backs. I think you could, um, I, I, you know, I think that could work. He also mentions bringing in a quote-unquote buddy green disciple. Um, that's Navy's longtime defensive coordinator, I believe. He, he's always kind of had a bend-o-break approach. Uh, I think the talent they could get, they could go in the opposite direction too. They could do bend-o-break. They could also just do, you know, balls-to-the-wall aggression. Um, and, and try to attack and attack and attack and try to force some turnovers and then because I mean turnovers are killer. I, I would be a little worried. I, I would be a little worried about that with the speed. How much natural speed are you going to find? Yeah, I mean that's it, <laughs> that's a fair. Um, I would say um, hire Air Force it, somebody from Air Force because right now they have figured out a, a way to put together a really 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 aggressive defense with guys who have to qualify for Air Force. Um, I really want to look into that a little more because they, they've got that Michigan State Baylor kind of aggression level. Uh, that sound you hear is me stealing a story idea from my <laughs> podcast co-host. I don't, I've, I've already written about Air Force, and I didn't think I did it enough justice. I didn't go into enough detail. So now I'm, I'm tagging you in to, to get to Nation, we know you want more Air Force. <laughs> That's right. 
but they've just, I mean, what they did two years ago, they, they had a dreadful defense um, when um, DeRuiter left, when he went to Texas A&M. They went from having like a top 20 or 30 caliber defense to just nothingness. Uh, and it was dragging the program down. Calhoun, they went 2-10 and 10 a couple of years ago. But not only did the offense improve a little bit these last two years, the defense went straight back up into like the top 60. Um, and it was by being crazy aggressive. So, I mean, if you can do it at Air Force, I think you can do it in Hawaii, but you obviously need to make a really, really good hire in that regard. I'm scrolling through. Um, man, some of you guys that took on multiple schools – I, I applaud you. Yeah, um, we're, we're publishing these entire emails to celebrate the work yeah. because it's pretty. It was pretty uh, intimidating the work that some of you guys did here. I'm not going to be able to touch all this stuff. Um, I will. Let me let me pivot um, and go. And, and this will be at the very top of the piece if you scroll through. Cameron wrote in, and Cameron wrote about multiple programs that I want to touch on. I'm putting him at the bottom, actually. But go ahead. Oh, okay. Cameron's going to be at the bottom. Yeah. Um, Cameron wrote a book. Um, thank you, Cameron. One of the things I want to touch on, just because I have some some local knowledge on this, is our, our old pals at Louisiana Monroe. He wrote about Cameron wrote about ULM, Eastern Michigan, Rice, and Tulane. Which, by the way, I think Tulane hiring Willie Fritz is is uh, you know if there's a theme to this program and and if there's a sort of hidden meaning for us on these homework assignments is that I think zig don't zag is probably the 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 mantra here. Yeah. Um, I thought Tulane did a nice zag hire personally. Um, by the way, Georgia Southern was shocked to see him go. I mean, they, they really didn't think he, they didn't think Tulane was going to be that next step for him. They knew he'd be out, you know, pretty soon. But um, I thought it was a coup of a hire. And I was in New York during Heisman Week when Tulane's athletic director was interviewing basically everyone under the sun. I thought it may go to more of a, you know, Houston nut joke aside, you know, an ex Power Five guy that was going to come in and, and try and use, um, you know, brand name recognition to recruit. And they went a much smarter route, in my opinion. Um, so let's jump in on ULM. Uh, there's a lot of things that I'm assuming that Cameron's probably not from the area that he points out that um, he goes into scheduling and he says, schedule a closer G5 opponent like Louisiana Tech. And should you win, it demonstrates a potential to a potential recruit that Monroe is a better alternative than to, than Ruston or Lafayette or Jonesboro, which currently is the case. Yeah, it would have to be like Virginia Tech or Louisiana Tech, and not actually Louisiana Tech. Well, that's the problem: is that a lot of these schools like ULM, and, and this may be the toughest of all the assignments because even you know, I don't know if we ranked our depression scale on this. <laughs> Hawaii's Hawaii's broke; it's in the middle of the ocean. Wyoming's cold; it has no talent. There, there is something just crippling about ULM, and one of those big problems is that Louisiana Tech refuses to touch them. Louisiana Tech has been incredibly resourceful, uh, I think really smart in a lot of its coaching hires. They've been able to bring in great talent, both naturally and through transfers. Um, they do not want to give ULM equal footing. For those of you who don't know, the two schools sit about a half hour apart on Interstate 20 in North Louisiana, ULM is obviously in Monroe. Louisiana Tech is in Ruston. They are one. They, they are neighboring parishes or neighboring counties, if you will. Um, and Tech feels very much like it is above ULM. Even in even in the rare couple of years when Todd Berry did have ULM clicking, and, and it would have been a dynamite game. There's also a pretty decent conspiracy theory out there, um, and I probably shouldn't use the word conspiracy theory because I did find some evidence to it that Tech. Um, kind of wiggled their way out of the Independence Bowl against ULM the year that ULM beat Arkansas, and Ohio got plugged in there instead, and they ended up routing uh, the Warhawks. Yeah, no, Tech I think that wants- was pretty – I mean, I've heard that from a lot of people. It sounded like they yeah. really – they wanted nothing. They ended up not going to a bowl instead of 
um, going to the Independence Bowl against Monroe. And I, that, I think that, that part was unintentional. I think they thought they were going to make it elsewhere, and, they, and it didn't happen. Uh, but yeah, I don't so, even do a lot of radio anymore, Bill, but I did the – I think it's – I think it's 97.7 FM. I'm sorry if you're listening to this down in North Louisiana. It's the big ESPN affiliate in North Louisiana. Went on the radio, was talking about something completely unrelated a couple months ago, and apparently stirred up a big storm down there with, like, Louisiana Tech people about, like, people in the athletic department about how stupid it is that they won't encourage and foster this rivalry just because neither one of those schools are, are, you know, burning through and selling a lot of tickets. Most of the people I know, including my all of my in-laws, uh, who live in Monroe and some of my in-laws, uh, you know, cousins and uncles and stuff that live in Ruston, they aren't really tech or ULM people. They're LSU people. So these schools would, it would, it would behoove them to go over to Shreveport in, in that big stadium and play each other every year in a neutral site game. And people could really celebrate the football talent that's in that part of the, the state, but they're stupid. And that, that doesn't happen. I was really annoyed um, with tech because I mean, first of all, that was Sonny Dykes. best team is also his last team there. Um, but that was, uh, you know, number one with bowls, you love a good atmosphere and that would have been a fantastic atmosphere. And you would have had Todd Berry's best, uh, craziest ULM offense, uh, versus Sonny Dykes's, uh, best and, and most wide open, uh, Louisiana tech offense. That would have been a phenomenal game. Uh, it was a very cold and foggy day. It would have <laughs> been a super weird, super weird, super intense game to catch. Like if you're just at home on the couch in Ohio, during the holidays and like slip by that's that's the kind of bull porn that we all like pray for (laughs) and usually don't get we usually just get some haphazard bs matchup um so uh camera goes on to talk about uh you know these teams make it all the teams around ulm big ull arkansas state tech etc these teams make it difficult to recruit to your level they also demonstrate that the proper coach will still be able to find a winning team there um, I think Matt Vader is a good way, uh, is a good coach. I'm kind of paraphrasing this. Uh, honestly, ULM isn't about the same recruiting boat as McNeese State. Ouch. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I disagree with that right now. Hopefully he can use his knowledge of the area to gain an edge in the local competition. I think if you're ULM, um, you just have to go crazy. You have to go crazy in almost every regard. Um, I, we liked what Barry was doing on offense. We liked the dual quarterbacks. We talked about all the fun, crazy stuff he did. That's how a program like ULM ended up on the front page of SB Nation so often. It wasn't because my in-laws lived there. Um, th- they were fun. And there's a, there's a certain marketability to pure, pure unfiltered fun. Uh, how you translate that into success is that you, in a market like that, you have to find a foothold with people who want to put money into a program like ULM, and they haven't been able to do that. Um, everybody talks about Appalachian State and Georgia Southern. Well, they stayed down in FCS for 20 years. They won a lot of football games, yeah. which made them an appealing product, both you know, the, the fact they were in kind of rural regions like of their state. There wasn't a lot going on but that. And it was something that you could take your family to. It was a, if you went to school there, you could come back on a Saturday and see them win a football game. You know, it was FCS, but you, they were winning the game. In Georgia Southern's case, I think they have like six, seven national titles. I mean, it's that kind of that kind of appeal of a product is what you're talking about at this level. You know, this this is so far removed from LSU, Georgia, Southern Cal that it's almost not the same sport. So if you're ULM, I like Brian Wickstrom. I like what he's trying to do. He's the AD down there. You just continue to do the craziest thing possible. And this, this is zig, don't zag in every single regard. Yeah. You know, Arkansas state has the, uh, has the camo uh, deer stand in the, in the, in the stadium. Do something like that. Yeah. I mean, how, do they, how do they let somebody else do that? 
How did Monroe? Not- I, I don't know because uh, there is no greater duck hunting in the United States than there is in North Louisiana. It's <laughs> it's what like was it Scalia? I don't know. One of the one of the Supreme Court justices would always take holiday there. I mean, it is a premier destination for hunters. Yeah, that that seems that 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 was a massive uh, missed opportunity on their part. Um, go crazy is my answer. It's just go absolutely crazy. There is talent there, and whether or not they want to play for you, I think this is a this is a case where I'll contradict and say maybe you don't try and replicate Willie Taggart and run big old power football. I think this is a case in which you've got to be doing stuff like like two quarterbacks. Um, I think I think you marry some of Oregon and Baylor, and you just go you go nuts with it. Yeah. Um, to go to further with Cameron's email here, uh, let's, let's, he, he did Rice and Tulane. Um, since uh, Rice is interesting because you can take a lot of what he, what he said about ULM, um, and have it be applicable, but status as a heavy hitter academic private school makes it more complicated. Uh, but there's nothing standing in the way of being competitive in Conference USA West for the right head coach. And by the way, that's the, the other part here in terms of zigging versus zagging. The other part is make good hires. And when that guy leaves, make another good hire. That That's kind of um, – that eliminates any of the other guessing game here. Um, obviously, And if you a, look, you're laughing there, but just to hammer that home, ADs at these schools get trapped in this like – fog of stupid where they think that the ex established name is the marketable move. Yeah. Don't worry about marketable. Yes. Hire the guy. No one's heard of. No one's going to show up anyway. They weren't showing up to begin with. They will show up if you win, you know, 30 games in four years. Yeah. No, that's when you make a hire for PR purposes, it's going to almost certainly fail. Um, Anyway, um, and Cameron says, obviously, as a Stanford fan, I see parallels, but clearly there aren't uh, that many similarities with regard to each school's potential football success. Tulane's hire of Willie Fritz is interesting because outside of the service academies, I can really see a high standards academic school using option attacks with smaller, less recruited players as a way of leveling the playing field. Rice might want to try something like that. And they kind of do. I mean, that bailiff's always been kind of experimental with the with uh, mobile quarterbacks and whatnot. Uh, more like Eastern Michigan because the recruiting is rather tenuous. Rice needs a steady hand who is willing to very patiently wait out the bad years. I think Bailiff has proven pretty strong in that regard too. As I'm jumping back and forth here between his words and mine and not really telling Mm -hmm. you which is which. Um, He says, I think Bailiff is doing a decent job, but if somehow a slightly better coach were to come along who has Bailiff's tenacity uh, to stick around with a historically loser program, Rice might want to upgrade. Um, Rice does have one advantage over the other Texas schools in Conference USA and Sunbelt. Uh, they're passed as a member of the Southwest Conference. For some reason, former uh, Southwest Conference members not named Texas A&M still like to play each other, and A&M does pick on the little guys kind of often. Uh, only until recently did Texas frequently still play Rice uh, in NRG Stadium, perhaps trying to perhaps bring those back. Uh, they have one down the road, but they should try more. True home and homes would be difficult to schedule, but two for ones with a game in NRG against Texas or AM or Baylor or Tech or TCU would be wonderful for Rice's profile. I'd say Tulane should play LSU at this juncture, but that won't happen. Again, only one or two a season. No need to take oneself out of bowl contention in October, but it's an advantage that a Texas State or a UTSA don't have, yet they're p- pushing to play more P5 Texas schools, and Rice should try to prevent that from happening. Use NRG to your benefit, he says. Uh, they've they've done that. Uh, yeah. they've done that. They've done that pretty consistently over the last couple of years. And in fact, um, there are some people that uh, in the in the small rice football community that are frustrated by that. Rice benefits because it is in Texas and it sits in Houston. And what that means is that 
it has some alumni, obviously not the size of like U of H or A&M or Texas or whatever, but they had they do have some alumni. And if you are an alumnus of a Texas institution with a football team, you want that football team to be as good as humanly possible. When oil is high, um, that's how things like TCU happen. So the support is there. I think they feel a little overwhelmed. Um, I don't know. I, I might disagree outright that that going for hey who you know hey power guy come in here and kill us it, it, you know just so you can play in the NFL stadium in a big television market. I think they're a little frustrated with that. Yeah, I think this program needs a James Franklin, and I think this program needs specifically the philosophy of a James Franklin in terms of scheduling. So Franklin, obviously, you have to work like four years in advance on scheduling. Um, he built stripped down all of Vanderbilt stuff. They had a deal with Michigan that was on the table. They had a deal with a couple other power schools. They had, you know, uh, Ole Miss had offered basically because of the size of their fan base traveling to Nashville, we'll put the game in the Titan Stadium, which they did two years ago. Franklin didn't want any of that because he wanted to create some advantage for a program that had none. So what he did was schedule all the games that Vanderbilt's going to play this year. Middle Tennessee State, Western Kentucky, Tennessee State, which is a cross-town school. That's, I think, maybe more on Rice's level where you start winning football games and worrying less about Energy Stadium. So I think basically what Cameron's suggesting here is is hire a younger David Bailiff um, because they yeah. do seem to have taken a lot of his uh, proposed approaches in recent years. And, and it's interesting. I mean, Rice is at an interesting spot. Like, number one, you know, they have definitely played a lot of, of these power teams and they almost always get drubbed by them. But they beat almost everybody else too. Like you go through, um, obviously they, they kind of stu- they stumbled in 2015 more than I expected them to, but they lose to Texas by uh, two touchdowns. They lose to Baylor by 53 points. Um, otherwise they go five and five in 2014. They lose to Notre Dame by 31. They lose to A&M by 28. Uh, otherwise they go eight and three. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it's kind of a give and take. Are, are, is part of the reason they're so solid lately on their level you know, on the conference USA level. Is it because they're playing these games and getting exposure? Is that helping recruiting? Because if it is, then, you know, take your lumps and then go win conference USA. Uh, well, look, that- okay. Their 2019 schedule bill is their, their non-conference opponents for the next couple of years is fascinating. I don't know what the logic is here. <laughs> I'm dying to find out. So 16 at army Baylor at home, Prairie view, A and M and at Stanford. But then I look at like, in 2018, they have to go to LSU, at Wake Forest, at Hawaii, home against Houston. In 2021, they're at Okie State in Texas in the same year, they're home against Houston. They've got series lined up where they're oh, at God. USC. Yeah, 2023, I mean, they, already got, they already have at Texas and at Boise State. At Boise, yeah. I don't know if this is, if this is predicated on money. Um, I actually have uh, – I can, I can ask someone I know who's near Rice um, – this is this is strange to me. I, I think you try and go with take advantage of the uh, uh, find the Prairie Prairie View A and M, which I suddenly couldn't pronounce. Do whatever you can to put Houston on the schedule every year for obvious reasons, and then build lower. I, I would build <laughs> out lower. I would find um, where's the, where's Texas State. Go go schedule a series with schedule a, a six a six game three and three with Texas State. I don't know why they're trying to do this stuff. Like, what does Wake Forest give you? Yeah, Wake Forest is an interesting one. I, I can kind of read into the other ones, but that's um, 
that might just be a scheduling is harder than we think it is kind of move right there. It definitely is, but it also is, is it's a little strange to be that with the amount of schools in Texas that they're just that they're not taking advantage. Where's North Texas? Yeah. Oh wait, no, no, I'm sorry, North Texas is a conference opponent. Um oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where's get a directional Louisiana from the Sun Belt. Get you get, get a ULM in here, get a ULL. It's just very, very strange to me. Very strange. Um, we're talking a lot about the scheduling. Um, I think the money's there when it, when it's interested and when it's excited. They actually dump a pretty good amount of money into baseball um, because yeah. they're a baseball powerhouse. So people people do care there. This isn't one of those lost cause programs. It's it's not the same as as the directional Louisiana where you're just trying to get you're you're, you're going out on a marketing campaign. Um, Let's oh, stay in Cameron's email for a second. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Let me scroll through all of Cameron's email. Um, Okay, this will, I guess is the best way to kick off how we talk about Army, but um, Cameron jokes here, the first step is to solve the crisis in the Middle East that will free up some recruits who might otherwise not commit. Uh, I mean, that's the seriousness of when, with which you know they're, they're dealing. Um, all joking aside, I'm inclined to say that the cadets might just stay this way forever, that they should just say F it and play Navy and Air Force, half the CUSA, half the Ivy League, and just do whatever the hell they want because they're Army. They might not win a bowl game, but they'll win your heart. <laughs> um, well, Cameron, that's contrary to the homework assignment. Uh, I, several of you wrote in about Army. Everyone has sort of a different extreme idea every time. Um, it, it's probably the it, it is probably the the best example of the homework assignment. I think it's the one riddle that hasn't been solved. I love Todd Munkin. Um, uh, which one of you? Andrew wrote in with a much more extensive response about Army. I think his was probably the best. I think he's an Army fan. Um, he talks about scheduling FCS programs within the I-95 corridor to, to start sort of building some some regional interest and help recruiting in that area. Um, you know, he, he broke down an entire schedule, and you can I won't read it all out loud, but you can check it out on the site. Um, it's, it's admirable. It may be a little tough to build it out exactly like that. I don't know, Bill. I mean, a lot of what Andrew, a lot of what Andrew wrote in the email is more about the the outside marketing of it, where he, he says, "Hey, try and get on television some weeknights." Um, uh, interesting here on his defensive philosophy. Largely agree that the option is a preferred offense for Army. Controls clocks, smaller linemen, etc. They have to do something radical on defense, though, to mitigate the uh, to mitigate against the lack of flat out speed in the secondary and defensive line size. Perhaps running a 3-4 that mostly morphs into a 5-2 against the run? Do everything possible to recruit a couple of legitimate cover corners to prevent getting burnt deep by receivers. <laughs> Maybe a bridge too far in recruiting, but I think that's the direction. Sounds good to me. Yeah, and again, here's where, you know, now Godfrey, you really do have to go to, you know, talk to uh, Calhoun at Air Force and figure out what the hell they're doing on, on defense because that is, yeah, I understand that, you know, not every service academy is the same, and, and I know Navy especially has invested a ton uh, into athletics, probably more than Army has. And we can talk, if we wanted to go down the road of, you know, maybe it's easier to recruit to Navy than Army in general or whatever. But the bottom line is, you know, Navy and Air Force have both figured out how to win a lot of football games, uh, which proves that it can be done if you if you make a really good hire and, and uh, give him some semblance of support. Um, as far as the defense goes, I mean, I think I do think that, you know, the, the whole 5-2 against the run thing sounds kind of terrifying, but... Um, you mm-hmm. know, the, going to a three, four approach, that is kind of what air force and, and Navy both do. 
um, maybe that's a reason to try something completely different. You know, if, if they're doing it uh, and they're doing it better, but it, it has always kind of made sense to me. Navy's kind of mastered the opposite of what Air Force has done lately and, and bend, 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 um, and take advantage of every mistake, be prepared to take advantage of every mistake you make. Uh, we know that can work. They just, they have not had the talent. They have not had the talent that Navy has had, and that's why they've lost so many games in a row to Navy. So whether that's a system thing, whether that's a recruiting thing, that's that's been the biggest thing. Um, they just have not recruited the same level of talent that Navy has. I, I, I hate to joke about them dropping down. Um, this is a tough one. Even you know, We sit here and make really broad assumptions. You, you mentioned a minute ago with scheduling and how much more difficult that actually is behind the scenes. We're making a lot of assumptions about a lot of things. That's kind of what we're paid to do. But it's it's pretty telling when you can't even sit here in armchair a, a remedy for Army. I, I really don't know where to start. Yeah, I mean, I think you have the blueprint from Navy and Air Force. You just you've got to figure out how to get more talent on the field than they've been able to get. Um, but to me, yeah, if that's not possible, then it's not possible. I guess right. I, I'm starting to think that there may be a flaw inside of that blueprint that we can't see as it relates to West Point. And I don't know if it's specifically what goes like in terms of the training and the regiment that goes on at West Point versus Annapolis versus uh, Colorado Springs. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I don't know. By the way, anytime they, that gets brought up, Navy fans get pretty indignant. Um, I'm not trying to say it's easy to be in the Navy or be in the Naval Academy. It's not. I couldn't do it. What I'm saying is there's some difference there. There has to be to see this pattern persist. Yeah, Munker, by all accounts, was a great. I mean, on paper, he that hire made perfect sense, um, and maybe he'll still figure still it does, out. Still does, I guess. But I mean, it, it, maybe it will work out in year three or four or five or whatever. But um, the fact that we we've seen a guy who can uh, win games with an option type system, uh, not winning games yet. That, that's obviously that's obviously tricky. Uh, let's jump up to Todd's email real quick. Let's see what are we at. We're, we've passed fifty minutes, by the way. We've passed fifty three minutes. Um, Todd, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. You'll be the second email you see uh, on the SB Nation post when you're reading the emails. Uh, he says the teams that have really broken through seem to follow two models: one, do something really different on offense, for example, Randy Walker at Northwestern; two, yeah. act as a waypoint for a discarded talent that hasn't made it in, uh, at the Alabamas of the world. One good example is Colorado State at Jim McElwain. Um, I, uh, uh, Bowden at Akron would be another one. Um, a program that can merge both is ULM. Here's what I'd do. One, implement the Tom Osborne Nebraska option system on offense. No one is running it anymore, and most non-power conference teams are focused on stopping the spread. They don't have the defensive talent up front to disrupt a traditional option team. Two, defensive style is dictated by opponents. Utah showed you can crush a Nick Saban defense if you're not able to defend the right things. Um, well, maybe admit if you're able to defend the right things. Um, three, split re- recruiting evenly between regular high school talent focusing on non-power programs and transfer slash JUCO talent. The reason this works is there is a total smorgasbord of high school of high-level talent that will never play at a- SEC schools. Ashawn Robinson is unreal, but the guy two spots behind him who never plays is probably a high four-star guy. He is your target. Start recruiting their high school coaches uh, at the end of their red shirt year. Uh, when a reality may be starting to set in, but they can transfer with four years left. These guys went to Alabama convinced they would make it to the NFL, but smart ones will realize that they can't climb the depth chart and just don't fit in in a place like Alabama. Uh, the benefit is focusing on these guys is they have a ton of talent, way more than at a place like uh, Louisiana Lafayette, but haven't clicked. 
Uh, say you have 50 guys on the roster who are standard ULM talent and 50 guys, albeit short timers due to transfer rules who are SEC slash big 12 cast offs. You only need a hit rate of 25% of those cast offs to have a starting roster with half Sunbelt and half lower, uh, lower end SEC talent. By the way, this is basically what Arkansas state's doing at the moment. And it, it's mm-hmm. beautifully. Um, remember that you don't need them to start at Alabama. Just be good enough to beat Louisiana Lafayette and Troy. This is also a great deal for quarterback recruiting. There are a lot of super raw talented quote unquote quarterbacks who just can't learn to throw well enough to play in the sec, but they can run and throw well enough to meet requirements for a system that throws like Paul Johnson at Georgia tech, uh, needs his quarterbacks to throw. Uh, quarterbacks in particular can be drawn to systems that fit their skill set. That's partially why Stanford can recruit quarterbacks so well. Essentially, recruiting is a Bill Snyder model, but to to a place closer to talent and with less focus on risky or JUCO players. Disruptive, dis, uh, disruptive, different offenses have been shown to work over and over again. Sure, there's risks, but no effort like ULM is surefire. I actually kind of like the Osborne idea. I hadn't really <laughs> that, the that, Osborne that, idea. I like a lot more than the Snyder idea. Yeah, that's Snyder idea and power. Yeah. That was at the front of the piece, Um, and again, this is why it's so tough to read all this out on the air, but I like the Osborne idea at the front of that. I I, I just want to, before we get into that, I don't like the idea that JUCOs fix every every program because I don't think people realize the amount of JUCOs that go into these G5 programs. It's it's not a it's not always a band aid. In fact, it, you the, the reason why Snyder's system works on JUCOs is because so many others fail, and they're that much better at evaluating the JUCO talent. It's not as simple as going in and plugging out of the JUCO system. Also, it helps that like there's a nice little collection of JUCOs in Kansas, like right. Butler. Yeah, like basically, if you're committing to JUCO, Coffeeville, shout out to Coffeeville. Oh yeah, uh, Butler. Um, basically, yeah, if you're committing to JUCOs, that means you have to continuously do well with them. Like you can't ever have an, an, an off recruiting cycle. Um, right. And, and that's really, really tricky. But, um, I mean, a lot of the other ideas make sense if you're a program in the South. Now, I mean, it, it's not a unique approach trying to get those transfers. You would have to do a better, you would have to recruit them better than like an Arkansas state uh, is doing at the moment. And Arkansas state has a lot more recent wins to lean on. Uh, if they're selling an sec cast off quote unquote. Uh, so, you know, in theory that, that seems to make a lot of sense, but you still have to land those guys and it would be pretty competitive even with your own conference to do so. So that would be tricky. If you can pull it off though, um, get, especially on the defensive side of the ball, that's kind of what Akron did. They, Akron had an awesome front seven last year. It, it felt like it was kind of half Ohio state guys. Um, I think there were only two, maybe three in there, but they had a lot of like low four, high three star t- uh, guys who were casted off from the big 10. It can work. Uh, but I met an Akron to- assistant uh, uh, two months ago in a casual conversation, not an interview. And I asked him specifically about, because a lot of that staff is built out of um, Terry Brown's North Alabama connections yeah. when he was there, when he came back into coaching, when he was taking on a lot of transfers. Yeah. They don't really hit it the way you might expect. I think if you got that job at Akron, you think, well, here's this guy who used to coach at Auburn. Let's go in and get the South and bring it up here to Ohio and, mm-hmm. and, and take over the Mac. They are very pragmatic. They know right up front what recruiting to Akron is like. They, they're they not going to go into a living room in Birmingham and try and sell you on something that, that you don't want. They they Those coaches, I was told, asked pretty much within the first 30 seconds, if you're south of like Lexington, Kentucky – and Akron comes to visit you, they want to say, hey, are you are you willing to come up here? This is what it is. This is where you're going to be. If not, we can't waste our time here, which I thought was actually, it, it, it seems kind of fatalistic at, at, up front because these are all, for the most part, Southern guys recruiting in Ohio. But 
I think it saves time, and I think because they lean on transfers, it's it doesn't turn into something that's counterproductive. So yeah. it's pretty interesting. Um, let's go ahead and lean so we can get through these emails. Let's go ahead and lean into Sam's email because um, he talks about a few of the same things. So um, so first he says for non-conference scheduling, he would totally follow the Bill Snyder approach. Um, cupcakes the first three years or first few years. Uh, if you have to play a power five team for monetary reasons, schedule them, schedule teams like Purdue and Kansas um, and schedule at least two FCS opponents every year. Um, and he's talking about when he was running the dynasty mode on NCAA football, which I very much relate to. The tricky part is, to, isn't it? Don't you have to play five FC, FBS opponents um, each year to maintain FBS status, something of that nature, I think. So I mean, yes. you could do you could do two, but you then you have to have a home game lined up in the other two games every single year, and that could get iffy. Um, but let's see. So people might complain about opponent quality, but strength of schedule only matters if you're trying to win a national title. Your average college football fan is not dissecting Western Kentucky or Georgia Southern schedule. They say, "Wow, Georgia Southern won ten games this year," or "Wow, Georgia State made a bowl. Good for them." One flaw to scheduling like this is it will hurt your home game attendance in the short term, uh, playing a bunch of bad teams. My counter to this would be that fans will get over this if their school is winning. It's better to be 8-2 and two and hosting Savannah State than be 2-8 and eight and hosting Boise State. Uh, he also talks about the quote-unquote Terry Bowden approach, um, taking any player kicked off a Power 5 school uh, or who cannot qualify academically to a bigger school. Um, that has, just so everybody knows, that has uh, repercussions. Yeah. Yeah, you you really the APR among other things the APR can still bite you in that yeah. regard. Um, the APR or the or the New York Times uh, unflattering profile. Just <laughs> right. FYI. Um, and for a scheme, I would run a Big Twelve spread tempo uh, on offense. On defense, I would run a three three five or four two five because building a program is selling your brand as much as it is winning games. I think you'd need a system that focuses more on offense in order to make your games as entertaining as possible. By the way, once again. This is basically what Arkansas State's doing. They're doing a phenomenal job of building an identity around fast, 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 fast. So um, very good for Arkansas State because they they had that you know they they didn't exactly have a ton more resources than anybody else did ten years ago. But they went out and made an ambitious hire. And when that guy left after a year, they made another ambitious hire. And now they found a guy who will actually stay for at least three years. Uh, he's recruiting well. He's bringing in a ton of transfers. They are fast as hell on both sides of the ball. Um, so good for them. Uh, we have not gotten to Jay's email, which is Jay. If you're listening, um, we we actually have an open spot right now at SB Nation to run the Wyoming blog. <laughs> uh, I think he would be well suited. I don't even know if Jay is a Wyoming fan, but this is he, unbelievably he, thorough. He, he, he sold it as if he was. Yeah. Holy crap! Um, it, it's it's a uh, word document. Of, of the 8,000, I would say it's probably, what, four of it? Um, <laughs> uh, so let's – I'm going to cut through it pretty fast. He gets into – he went and checked how how frequently there are flights into Cheyenne, <laughs> which for those of you who don't know, Cheyenne is like an hour and change away from Laramie. Um, it's kind of the main city. Uh, he mentions the JUCO route specifically with Bill Snyder. Talks about recruiting the Denver area. Talks about how Craig Bull – um, developed the talent in North Dakota State. This is just insanely I, – I encourage you guys to read this just because I think this email is probably the essence of the, the entire podcast. And not just not just because it's about uh, my favorite school, Wyoming, but this is just unbelievably impressive. Um, I, I would like to point out, though, somewhere deep in this email, he's talking about scheduling philosophy. He echoes a lot of what we already talked about, but he says, you gain nothing from playing Ole Miss except the paycheck – 
That's not true, my friend. You beat Ole Miss twice. They scheduled <laughs> they scheduled a home and home with Ole Miss in the aughts. I was there for both. I was covering the team. Uh, Wyoming won both of those games. <laughs> um, the uniforms could be cooler, Jay. I completely disagree with you. Oh I think man, Wyoming's, I love those colors. Wyoming's, I love those colors. Uh, colors and uniforms are the probably some of the best in college football. Um, I'm trying to find a way to 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 attack this with some brevity. Jay kind of sums up everything we've already said about Wyoming on the podcast. I think um, one of the things that I like is that he's, he, he seems to fixate on the Denver area. And I don't think that's the worst option because when you get out west, it's a little different. You don't have as much competition um, from the people I've talked to out there. You know, the Broncos just won the Super Bowl. The Broncos are sort of the – really, in terms of sports franchises, I think the Broncos are like the New York Yankees in the west. It really has that kind of adherence because you can go all the way into the Dakotas and Montana, all the way south down into Arizona, and the Broncos are just that brand name. Um, you know, really, I think they, they're only rivaled by the Cowboys when you get uh, on that side of the Mississippi River. Wyoming would do well to work in the Denver area more. I, I'm sure it's not something they have, you know, haven't addressed, but whatever they can do, you have to fight Colorado, you have to fight CSU's, your evil rival who's basically halfway between you and Denver, but. Um, getting into a major market and and you know this Wyoming stay with me Bill and this is inspired by your email Jay Wyoming might benefit from treating Denver the way Oregon treated New York City during the Joey Harrington huh. uh, for those of you who don't remember uh, in, before there was a Pac-12 network or before there were conference networks Oregon was I'm trying to think how best to explain this, Bill. Oregon was was had a had a ton of Nike money, had just started the uniform craze, had really started to become this very peculiar thing. And this is before Boise was a household name. They were winning football games. They were, I think, headed to the Rose Bowl that year or yeah. close to it. I think they ended up in the Fiesta. Um, and they struck a deal to rebroadcast their games on the Yes Network, which is the Yankees flagship thing, which I think runs in four or five states. It's, it's on DirecTV now. But at the time, it was just the New York area. And they bought a giant billboard of Joey Harrington in Times Square during the Heisman campaign. And they just decided, hey, we're going to go after New York City. It's the biggest media market in the country. Uh, let's see if this works. And I don't know if it worked. But it was kind of weird, and it was a little crazy, it, and at the very people least, figured out what an Oregon was. At the very least, it, it didn't not work. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't fail. It didn't. Uh, you know, drag their program down. They had the money to spend, so they spent it that way. And you know, good for them. I think if Wyoming goes into Denver and plays up the old cowboy culture and that rich history, then maybe there is something to that. I don't know how that immediately translates into football wins but program awareness works in funny ways when kids are learning about football teams and and coaches on snapchat i don't think there is a wrong answer there so i highly encourage everyone to read jay's uh to read jay's entry we, we couldn't do it justice here in an audio format it is a beast um bill do we have we, we i think we've hit at least on one of every email that we've received is that correct um have we done anything with david's yet so this one is... This is more Wyoming. Yeah, actually, yeah, it is. Um, he, he gives another example that's kind of Craig Bullish. He says... 
I like David's. By the way, and I just I just showered all this praise on on Jay, but David's is much more football intricate. So yeah. let's let's see if we can sum up David's from a schematic standpoint before we get out of here. All right. So he says, I personally feel the Craig Ball hire will work out if he's given at least four to five years uh, to see his plans develop. And and you know, as an editorial note, I have to figure he will. Uh, for the sake of argument, let's say the job's open, and and this document is my advice to the administration. So. Um, it, it, so for the system to work best, it needs to survive past a single coach's tenure. The goal will be to ride the head coach we find for as long as we can get him and hire from within after that. He's a Michigan fan, so he says the example would be Bo Schembechler, then Gary Moeller, then Lloyd Carr in succession. What we're looking for is the best possible recruiter we can find that fits the profile. We're looking for a coach in the last third of his career, which is Okay, Dyson, okay. Uh, no, possibly. I, I'm still with you. Uh, as long as you have a successor, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's just different than what we've talked about. But, I mean, Tommy Tuberville's winning games in yeah. Cincinnati. And, I mean, Lon Kruger just made the Final Four in basketball uh, yep. with the goal to make this his destination job. Family man, kids, and most definitely not the type of coach that sleeps in his office or expects the same of his staff. Uh, he must have a long history of being a head coach. NFL experience is a plus. Uh, By the way, he is describing Tommy Tuberville. <laughs> um we, mostly we're looking for a wizard, so not not Tommy Tuberville, uh, that works miracles as a mindset. Uh, he must have a P.T. Barnum style, so not Tommy Tuberville. Uh, magnetic personality, uh, whose willpower oh my transforms. God. Is, 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 is this Houston Nutt writing in? Hell yes. I think Houston Nutt's just writing in under, Houston, I've told you, stop, all right? If Keep my name up, out your mouth. If it were up to me, you would already get the, the Wyoming job or whatever job you want. Um, it said his approach here is that recruiting is the mm. biggest thing. Uh, there has to, yeah. this has to be the best quality of the head coach, best quality on most of the hired assistant coaches on staff. Then teaching must be second. Um, we must hire the best high school head or assistant coach we can find in our targeted recruiting areas. Um, he wants to run, by the way, he wants to run pro uh, combo pro style West coast power. That's cool. Like, you know, modeling after Michigan and Stanford, Bill, I, I may contradict myself here when I just advise to everyone, hey, that, that could be a great trend to differentiate yourself. The problem at Wyoming is that I don't know if you get the bodies for that. Yeah, you need the size. Where I think like at a directional school in the G5 in the more populated parts of the country, like like if you're in a small school in the California or the, the southeast or like Texas, you could probably find the bodies. I don't know if you can get all those offensive linemen that you need. And the size it tied in. I could be wrong. Maybe it's out there. And maybe you feel like can, that would that's be where you can, you know, raid Kansas and Texas JUCOs um, and try to get those the more physically ready guys. I don't know. You that, might, that would be the trick. You, you might get the actual slow, slow guys at that point. Right. Yeah, and, and maybe that's, you know, just get, yeah, get these 6'3", 335-pound guys who don't have good 335-pound weight, uh, but who, you know, other Mountain West defenders can't run around. Um yeah, no, I mean that that was a different approach. Forget tactics. We're just we're 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 selling this program like Barnum and Bailey. I enjoyed that one. I like the Michigan I like the Michigan first off, I like any fan of a major school who took this much time out and wrote a very thoughtful email to us about a program he obviously <laughs> doesn't care about. Uh, that's awesome. I appreciate that, David. But um I like the approach of, of applying Michigan to Wyoming here just because we, we like to do horrible things in our little laboratory. <laughs> Building a dynasty would be exactly what Wyoming needs because they're going to suffer when if they have a lot of coaching turnover, be it replacing guys who leave or just firing people every five years. That's what they're suffering right now. Um, I don't know how you build a dynasty, though, out there. It's pretty tough. Yeah. 
Although, I mean, they kind of thought they were doing that because Craig Bowles left and North Dakota State kept on keeping on. Yeah, and, and so they, they still could. They, He's only been there two years. And, um, I mean, he had to strip that thing down to the to the foundation. There was He was playing so many freshmen and sophomores last year. So maybe within the next two years we're talking about, you know, how Bowl is exactly the blueprint for Wyoming uh, and how yeah. they better have a successor in mind or something. We'll see. Um, okay. I think I we did it. push it forward a little bit, Bill. We have not really touched on spring football much. We're not really going to. We will be back next week. We're going to stay in a regular schedule. Um, it's Mac week next week. It is Mac week, so we're going to have a lot of Mac coverage. If there's anything off of like Bill's schedule preview that you guys want to talk about, I'm going to be on NFL Draft Island for about two weeks. Um, so I won't have any content to bring and, and do a kind of, hey, look what I wrote. Um because I don't think we want to talk draft stuff on this podcast. If, if you do, then, then please feel free to contact us and say otherwise. But I think I know the answer to that, and that's cool. Um, there's a reason we are a college football podcast. So uh, if there are any top-level you know, uh, teams that actually contend for national title-type questions, uh, lay them on us. I'm open. We don't just have to follow a particular schedule. Um, it's been a pretty quiet news cycle, though. I mean, that's good, I think. Um noise at this time of the year isn't always good <laughs> so seen a couple couple injuries uh at spring games I, f- I find that interesting um we can save kirby smart and open records for next week i think that's probably the one headline that that has that has grabbed my attention in a very personal way but i don't know how much the in, the the audience is interested in it. although i did have people hit me up on twitter asking what that meant um and why that was being done so maybe there's something to that yeah, I mean, this is certainly a wheelhouse thing for you, so we we can. Yeah, um, oh yeah, get getting mad about access to a program and hollering about it on the internet. That's I, that's I think I filled out two uh, Freedom of Information Act requests in my life, and I'm still just all sorts of annoyed by that. So um, I'd be happy, <laughs> depending on what we end up breaking into with Mac Week next week. We can either do that next week or the week after. Yeah, I f- no, yeah, I feel good. Uh, uh, so go ahead and preemptively hit us up with Mac questions. Bill's preview schedule, do you want to lay out when, when, what's coming when or just kind of tease it uh, out? Eastern Michigan, uh, you know, we've been talking about them for a while. That that did go up yesterday. We're holding off on going full Ypsilanti uh, because we wanted to get to all these emails. Um, so maybe we, we, we go full Ypsilanti next week. But no, it's the Mac for the next Ooh. two and a half weeks. Um, Miami uh, of Ohio up today. Uh, Kent State up tomorrow. They're another interesting, sad program that just one year almost made a BCS Bowl and then went back to being um, kind of sad. Ball State, Buffalo on Friday, Akron on Monday, Central Michigan on Tuesday. So um, a lot of interesting programs. You know, Mac was pretty damn good last year. It, it was really pretty damn good last year, and it was better than the Mountain West. Which All right, is here's, here, Go ahead. here's what I'm going to throw at you for next week. All right. I need a better way of casually telling these programs apart because I feel like if there's if the, they are as a collective, the Mac is the most homogenous. Yeah. Conference oh man. In, in the, the first, country. like I think two years that I wrote these profiles, like 2011 and 12, um, I didn't have a broad enough view. Like I didn't, I wasn't really able to distinguish them yet. And it, it was such a slog because it felt like I was talking about the same team every day. Like by this point, this is my sixth year doing these. I can start to kind of tell individual stories now, but, oh, man, those first couple of years were rough. Mm, big time. All right. Um, thanks for listening. Um, th- hey, and thanks for entertaining us while we took a pseudo vacation. I know Bill was in Oklahoma. I was in um, mainly here on assignment in, in Mississippi for a hot minute. So um, we're back. We won't leave you again, hopefully. Uh, we might leave you in July.
But there'll be a good news and relating in late July that we'll get to later. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Yep.